Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Welcome to a special bonus episode of From Scratch. I'm your host, Michael Ruhlman. While we developed season two, we wanted to release some unused material. During our reporting and interviews for this show, we've gathered great material that we've had to cut. Here we're sharing complete interviews of some of our amazing guests, some chefs, some from outside the professional kitchen. In this extended interview, I sit down with Jonathan Waxman, one of the country's preeminent chefs, a creator of the new American cuisine as the chef at Michael's in Santa Monica, California in the late 70s, and most recently of Jams in Manhattan and the erstwhile Barbudo, soon to reopen in the West Village, I pray. Chef Waxman talks about roasting, cast iron pans, shepherd's pie, and more. See you here soon when we launch season two of From Scratch. First of all, I, I love talking to you because you have been at the front of the American restaurant scene from its beginning. You could have gone any which way you wanted. You could have done anything. You could have done high-end, medium-end, low-end, uh, but you went super simple with Barbuda. You know, when I opened Barbuda was 2004. Well, the conception thereof was 2003. And I was 50... 
52, 53 years old at that time. And I, you know, I tried a lot of things, threw a lot of shit against the wall, threw a lot of, some things stuck, some things fell off, some things imploded, some things um, actually self-ignited. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I told myself that I really wanted to make a lot of money for one simple reason. I had three hungry kids. I had a mortgage. I had daughter in private school. I had all these things that, that needed real cash to, to yeah. make things flow. And I realized that a lot of times I, I had done things perhaps for more ulterior motives or more intellectually motivated reasons. And I didn't really do something that was really sort of a base value economic decision. But I didn't want to compromise. So how did that work? So I decided that I would strip away all pretense. I'd have one fork, one knife, and one spoon. I'd have one wine glass, one water glass, no tablecloths, one napkin. That was a nice napkin, but not too nice a napkin. I didn't want to have a point of sale. I didn't have a mater d. I didn't have um, a GM. I didn't have. I just had people doing stuff. The multitasking everywhere, and I wanted the menu to be stripped down to be so simple, simple that it was kind of like the way I cook at home. You know, it would be a piece of fish that was purchased from the fishmonger, lightly grilled, put it on a plate with olive oil, lemon, parsley, call it a day. And when we opened in 2004, Barbuto stuck with that sort of thematic line. Some things didn't work, like the fact that not having a GM was a really stupid idea. Not having a point of sale was another really dumb, you know, idea on my part. But the other things, the other streamlined things actually worked remarkably well. Now, there was no, I didn't have any model for this. So this is really kind of something out of, out of really out of the, you know, the seat of my pants. I didn't know if it was going to work. Um, I didn't know if people would salute it. I didn't know anything except that I felt in my gut that's what I wanted to do. And thankfully, it worked. Big so, time. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, it, Michael, honestly, it was, a real, um, it was a real experiment. It was, it was something that could have seriously backfired. I mean, no one could have come. Mm -hmm. People would say, like, oh, I didn't even, also, I made a conscious decision not to have anything over $19 in the menu at the beginning. And that pissed everybody off because they said, you know, what are you doing? You know, you got from, you know, a $6 million wine cellar and all this stuff at Washington Park and, you know, all these beautiful plates and gorgeous, uh, you know, chairs and onyx bar to this very simplistic scenario. And then I realized that, you know, people don't look at any of those things. They don't really care about that stuff. No one looks at a fancy ceiling or a fancy floor. People don't care what kind of lights are on the wall. People don't care what kind of art is on the People don't care about that stuff. People care about three things. They care about um, what I call the baseball, you know, vision. It's the strike zone. They look at things that they can see really kind of from people's eyebrows down to people's uh, waist. That's about it. That's all people look at because they look at each other. The second thing was that people are there to socialize. And the third thing, which sort of evolved in my thinking about what restaurants really are, is that what is a restaurant? What What is exactly a restaurant? And so I started looking at the word restaurant and getting people's definitions of what it meant. And at the end of the day, what I realized that restaurant means to restore one's spirit. That's what people are restaurants for. They're there to get sustenance for the body. They're there to get a little alcohol, maybe. But more importantly, they were there to forget the day-to-day -day woes of their lives. 
or the day-to-day travails, or they were there to celebrate, to engage in conversation, whether it was their their teacher, their friend, their lover, what didn't matter. I wanted an environment where people felt that they could escape escape the the rigors or the you know the difficulties of the day-to-day dementia. And I think that that kind of worked. That kind of worked in a, in a strange way. And it was a conscious decision on my part to really make people feel like they were eating my house. Mm-hmm. That was that was that was really the, the most important part of the decision. I know I did. Um, <clears throat> all those things worked for me. You know, I, I I fell in love again at Barbudo, that kind of place. Well, it was funny, and I think that it was partly I was a little broken when I opened Barbudo for a lot of reasons. Um, I had done Washington Park, which, which was my first restaurant in 10 years. I had left New York and after Jam's closed, and, and I went on sort of this quest of, of a family and different stuff. And when I opened Washington Park, I realized I was kind of going backwards in time. I was not looking forward. I didn't. I, I was plumbing the past rather than imagining the future. And I think for any business, regardless whether it's you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're a you know a guy working in the gas station, doesn't matter. If you stay the same, you'll 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 bore yourself to death, and you have to move forward. You have to change. And I I realized that, that was Barbuda was my sort of seminal kind of thinking on that. That I really wanted to make that quantum leap to another 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 level. And I was hoping that people would go along with the other thing, and they did. So mm-hmm. it kind of worked out. Um, but uh, it, it was, it's, you know, with the closing of Barbudo, I think that um, it sort of showed that maybe I was kind of right. Oh, you were definitely right. Look at the popularity. It's uh, an iconic restaurant in New York City. I want to get back to the closing of Barbudo in a little bit. But first, I want to talk about that simplicity of cooking. Uh, you, like you said, it's home cooking. But you do it at a masterful level. What do you have to offer the home cook about home cooking? You know, I think the thing I notice about when I go to people's houses and they cook for me or I watch people cook is that there's a timidity that happens in people's homes. Because you're a chef and they're nervous? Not about me, but I watch them in their own kitchens. Knives are never sharp. Ever. Never Worst show. problem in an American so kitchen. That, 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 I think I imagine all these severed limbs lying on the floor <laughs> in people's kitchens. People are afraid of their, their oven. They're deathly afraid of opening it. They're afraid of going anywhere near it. They think it's going to blow up or something weird is going to happen. They don't know how to use the flame on their stove. And I understand this. These are things that when I was a young cook, I was afraid of as well. I knew I was scared of sautéing something. When I saw somebody flip something in a pan the first time, I like, wow, that was like Houdini's greatest <laughs> trick. I think what I tell people at home is that it's great to have a repertory of things that you're com- your comfort zone foods. But at one point in, in life, you need to push that out. You need to push that away and go after new items. So I always admonish people to, to, to think food first, cookbook second. In other words, recipes are should always be pushed away. Go to your supermarket and look around and see what inspires you. Go to farmer's market. Go down the dock and look at, you know, the fishermen bringing stuff in. Go to the butcher. Anywhere that you find food that's fresh and well presented, you can get inspired. And you can also get things that you've never heard of and you go, let me try that. 
like um, lamb shanks. Lamb shanks are something that people at home have no clue about, but they're the easiest thing in the world to make. They're really delicious. They're almost bulletproof. It's hard to screw them up. Um, but you go into the supermarket and there's all the beautiful New York steaks and, and sausages and, and pork chops, and that's everybody gravitates toward. And the poor little, little lamb shank on the side is not getting any love. Go out of your comfort zone. Go over to the lamb shake and go go have a conversation with him and see if he if he's if he's somebody you want to meet and learn how to cook. And then take it home, open a recipe book up, and start cooking. Because I think that's really um, what I sort of try to get people to do. The second thing I try to get people to do is learn knife skills. Knife skills to me are the most important thing to learn. So I do a lot of you know, these demonstrations at music, at food and wine festivals all over the country. I do a lot of TV stuff. And one of the first things I, I tell people is how to hold a knife. And and it's simple. You could do this. Well, let's do it over, over, over the podcast because I think people can totally understand it. You hold a knife on either side of the very bottom of the – where the steel meets the meets the handle, the very bottom, right where that point is. And you, if you're right-handed, you put your thumb on one side – and you put your index finger to the other, and you just hold the knife straight up and down and see if you're comfortable doing that. Hold it for a little bit, move it back and forth, and then wrap your three fingers around the handle. And that's the proper way of holding a knife. It's a beautiful description. You know, you don't it's hold it simple. Like a, yeah. It's very simple. And then you have it. And then, and then the second part of the puzzle is that if you hold your hand, whether it's your left hand or right hand, doesn't matter, um, with your thumb be- behind your fingers. And and the thing I, I really want people to understand is that you don't be uptight. Don't, don't like, like grasp you know, your fingers like they're, you know, like they're going to, you know, something bad's going to happen. Keep it loosened and relaxed. Put your thumb behind your fingers and then take your knife and hold it against your middle finger of your opposite hand. And what you'll find is that the angle of your middle finger will be about... Eight to ten percent. In other words, the knife will be angled perfectly away from your hand. You'll never hurt yourself, mm-hmm. unless it's a dull knife. Well, even with a dull knife, you still you're not going to keep it away from your fingers. But um, and then uh, on the subject of sharp knives, yeah, um, don't be cheap. Go out buy a new knife. They're cheap. You can buy a good knife for twenty five bucks. I'm sorry, but you can. Um, and if you're afraid of sharpening it, there are sharpeners all over the planet. You can bring it back to the place you bought it. There's little guys in the corner that do it. Um, your hardware store can do it for you. And if you really don't want to sharpen the knife, give it away and buy another <laughs> one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think – so I think knife skills are sort of important. But learning how to cook in a pan is the, 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 the other thing that people need to understand how that works. And number one, get a great pan. Mm-hmm. Buy a pan. Don't buy a cheap pan. I'm a huge fan of cast iron. I think they're cheap. I think they're utilitarian. They look good. They never wear out. Um, and you can get them in different sizes. They're they're wonderful to work at. Here's the nice thing about um, cast iron pans: they fit on the stove nicely. They don't move around. They don't. They're they're stable. They're stable things. They're they're one of the most stable things in life. You know, they sit on <laughs> they sit on the burner and they don't move around. And they retain heat well. They heat up fairly quickly. Um, but they're very tolerant of mistakes. In other words, if you go to saute, uh, let's say, uh, asparagus, 
and you've chopped it up in little pieces with your very perfectly sharp knife, and you put a little olive oil and a little tiny bit of butter in the pan. You turn it on to medium, and when the olive oil and the butter is sizzling, you gently put your asparagus in. But here's the trick. Tilt the pan away from you as you do it because you don't want the, the butter and olive oil to splatter back towards you. And you put it there, and there's two things you can do. One is you can just stare at it and watch it cook. <laughs> well, the second thing is you can take a nice wooden spoon, wooden, not plastic, not steel, nice wooden spoon, and you can gently stir around that asparagus. And as you're doing that, magic happens because you're cooking, and you're enjoying cooking because you and the asparagus and the cast iron are one. You're not doing anything else but cooking the asparagus. You're not putting else, anything else in it, maybe a little salt and pepper. But you cook the asparagus and you turn the turn the burner off when they're done and you wait and you look at it and it goes, I'm going to eat that now. <laughs> and that's a beautiful thing. I love the simplicity of how you describe it. And, it. and I think, Michael, I think that's what people, people get too excited about complication. They they Everybody wants to razzle-dazzle their guests. They all want to have the most beautiful dishes, and you, and you see there's a lot of these wunderkinds now on, you know, uh, Gordon Ramsay's, you know, cooking show for kids. Or I've done kids', uh, kids uh, uh, competition shows, and there's like, 12-year-old kids that cook better than my, my chefs at my restaurant. But that's not the point. The point is to have fun cooking. Mm-hmm. It's not a contest. It's not a, it's not a, a race. It's... Going back to the the reason why restaurants work, to so restore your spirit, cooking at home does that tenfold. When you cook for in in your in your home for other people, that's the greatest thing you could do. That's the greatest love you could show people, and it's something that um, I learned from my parents many years ago. And I didn't I I didn't get it when my uh, when my mother cooked and she served a meal. There was no pomp and circumstance. There wasn't a lot of drama. Well, there's drama in other ways, but um, there wasn't a lot of, um, like, look what I did. It was get the food to the table and we ate it. If you took apart her act- actions and her intent and her all that stuff, it was, it's pretty magical. It's pretty special. And we don't, I don't think we appreciate it in a way that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, that's one thing I want people to, that when you cook at home, you are doing something special. So, Go out and buy the best ingredients you can. They don't have to be expensive ingredients, but try to buy the best things you can, um, whether it's the best vegetables, the best fruit, and you don't need a lot of it. I think people buy way too much stuff. I think people fill up their refrigerators with so much junk that they get confused. Um, I think the, the 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 thing about professional chefs that separate us from you know home cooks is that we know how to edit ourselves. Hmm. We know how to walk into a farmer's market and walk around and pick out the things we want to cook that day. Some other people, like at home, they go to the market and they buy the same things all the time. It's, it's hysterical. Um, I like sort of – I'm the wandering Jew. I, I wander around the, 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 the farmer's market and there will be like – we were there last Wednesday and there were eight guys selling asparagus. So I went to eight of those guys three times. It's it's hysterical. I'm I'm so OCD, and <laughs> and then and I finally like my chef Ginger from uh, Jams goes, "Will you just pick one of these asparagus?" And I said, "No, you do it. I, I I'm 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 flummoxed. I can't do it." <laughs> and you know, and that's my world, Michael. It's kind of weird. It's it's a weird, funny, quirky, strange, delightful world. Folks, this is why I love Jonathan Waxman, and it's because he thinks this way about food. He recognizes how how spiritually rewarding it is, in addition to nourishing. 
When we come back, Jonathan Waxman talks about the basics, the very basics of home cooking. Equipment, your oven, thermometers, as well as the cooking of a shepherd's pie. And, of course, the complete discussion on that favorite dish, a virtual PhD dissertation on how to roast and serve a chicken. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You talked about saute. What about inside the oven? What about roasting? Yeah, so inside the oven. No, I always tell people to get the best kitchen mitts or gloves you can possibly get. What works wonders, you go to the hardware store and you buy cheap welder's gloves. Hmm. And you don't buy the short ones. You want the ones that really go up to the to your almost to your elbow. And then you're protected. You can never get hurt with those things. That's one thing to do. Um, the second thing to do is to buy it a thermometer for your oven because all ovens at home don't read the right temperature. They're all what we call non-calibrated. 
Now, you can get your local gas company or electric company to calibrate them for you, but they don't stay calibrated. They're just not built the way commercial ovens are built. Um, that's those two things you could do. Um, the other thing you could do, which I think is important, is don't have too many racks in the oven. I find that at home, the manufacturers send you out with four racks or three racks. You really don't need two racks in your oven. Mm-hmm. And I think just two is fine. You don't need more than that. And the bottom one can stay fairly close to the bottom when you want to roast turkeys and, and big items. And the and the the second one can be in the middle. Um, and then if you really are doing a lot of cookies, I suppose you could put another third one in. But how many cookies can one cook at one time at home? So two I think is fine. Um, and then the other thing is make sure the oven light works. That's a big one. Hmm. You know, it's good to be able to see what's, what's going on in the oven, see what your dish is doing. And then also I, the broiler is your best friend, especially when you're in a pinch. Broiler can do anything. Um, there's a famous um, – John Hersey wrote a uh, book on uh, bluefish, and uh, one of his um, recipes, <laughs> I just love it, is a, is a bluefish filet with uh, Helmut's mayonnaise lathered on top, cooked in the broiler for five minutes, and that's the dish. Beautiful. Perfect. Yeah. You know, to me, it's like, it's so um, the broiler is a great friend. But so let's take the, the most uh, straightforward thing one can cook. So... I love cooking pies at home. Pies are the greatest thing to make, I believe, in in in, in home cookery. Um, and you can make savory pies. You can make fruit pies. You can make pies are there's a, they run the gamut of life. Yeah, pies. Um, and one of the pies. So let's take a savory pie. Um, and one of the greatest things I love is is shepherd's pie. And so you have leftover leg of lamb. And you've got leftover mashed potatoes, and you've got carrots, peas, and onions, and you got the lamb stock. So that's you got all the you got all the fixings. You put your oven on at three seventy five. Not and everybody says, "Well, I'm going to turn it up really high so I can cook it fast." Wrong. Don't do it too low. Don't do it too high. Three seventy five is a nice what I call a gentle heat. It's something you can cook almost everything at three seventy five, and. Um, what you cook the the shepherd's pie is is super important. Um, I'm always scared of Pyrex. I'm sorry, but I just am. I just think it's gonna. I think they're gonna break. They say they don't, but I. I so I like getting a heavy casserole pan and something that's enamel covered, or you can use a cast iron pan. I was gonna say you can cast use iron skillet. pans are great. So let's let's stick with our cast iron pan. And so what I like doing, and this is kind of a fun way of doing it, is uh, you chop your leg of lamb and you and you sear it in the pan with a little bit of olive oil or butter, whatever you want to do. Get it crispy, um, and then you add uh, some onions and garlic, and you add the stock back in, and you cook it just till it's starting to get tasty. You add the vegetables from the night before or fresh vegetables, doesn't matter, and you let it cool for about half an hour. Go have a cigarette or a, or a cocktail or go watch the you know the the tennis match, come back, and then you have your cold mashed potatoes. And it's important to have the cold ones and not room temperature. I don't know if people get that, but cold mashed potatoes is better for this dish. And you take a rubber spatula and you smear the mashed potatoes on top. Why cold? Because you want it to hold a form. It's like concrete. If it's too mm-hmm. soft, it's just going to go down inside the stew. Right. Okay? So you smear it on top. And some people like putting cheese on top. I don't. 
Some people like getting a really crisp exterior. I just like it to, like it to cook. And you put it in the 375-degree oven how long? So it's hot. Well, no, it's got to really be cooked. So this is where this is where you, there's tools that you can one can use. Uh, one is uh, to actually just pull the thing out of the oven and taste it. You know, pull a piece out, and then you ruin the top of the pie. So that's not good. Um, I like these simple little thermometers that they sell. They're ten, fifteen dollars. Um, you stick it inside, and at one fifty, one sixty, you're not you're not there yet. You're 175, 180, you're there. You cooked it. The outside is bubbling. The top is kind of golden brown. And you take it out. And what's the second most important thing about roasting? Letting things rest. Because the oven works by convective heat. It shows very hot heat at the objects in the oven. So the outside gets super hot quickly. But the inside is waiting to get hot. So as the as it's waiting at hot, there's a there's some transference of of heat energy, but it's not perfect. So when you take it out of the oven, the outside is still incendiary hot. The inside is 170, 165. Sit on top of the stove, let it sit for 15 minutes, 20 minutes. It all comes together at 165 or 170 degrees. It holds together when you scoop it out. It's not too hot. No one burns their tongue. And that's the best thing about so roasting really is about the right temperature, testing for doneness, and resting. But it's and it's that that way for a, a cherry pie, it's that way for an apple pie, it's that way for a, a shepherd's pie. Any kind of pie works the same way. But it's also the same thing for um, doing a brisket, a whole chicken, a leg of lamb. They all work basically by the same technique. So you're famous. Barbara was famous for their chicken. You had a you had a fabulous oven, cooked it particularly well. If you're roasting a chicken at home, what do you recommend people do? Three seventy five. So that's here's the rub. There is no perfect way, and so there's a lot of things that have to happen, Michael. So it's really goofy. It's goofy. It's not difficult. It's goofy. It's really goofy. Number one is how big is a chicken? A chicken is not a chicken. There are two-pound chickens. There are eight-pound chickens. There's capons. The size that I use is 3.5 to 3.75, okay? Mm-hmm. Why? Because the chicken is at the maturation level where the legs and the thigh, legs, thighs, and breasts are have, have grown to the sort of a perfect proportion. I call it perfect triangle. Mm-hmm. You know, so when they're roasting in the oven, the legs don't get overcooked, the breast gets undercooked. You know, it, it everything works perfectly together. So the right size. The secondarily is if you take a chicken from a cold refrigerator and put it into a hot oven, what do you think is going to happen? That's like it's really hot. It's not. It's not really a good idea. Right. Not really a good idea. Secondarily, so you have to get the t- the chicken up to temperature. So sit outside for an hour. You're not going to die of salmonella. Trust me. Um, you're not gonna. You don't have to call the the hospital, and 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 you're not killing your guests. Let the chicken sit out for an hour. Also, get it out of the plastic bag the night before, and let it sit in the refrigerator without the plastic bag on it. That's a super important thing because you want to get rid of all that crazy stuff that happens inside the plastic bag inside inside the um, uh, the supermarket. Um, and then seasoning the chicken is is equally as important as everything else. And when seasoning it, you need to not put salt and pepper on a raw chicken. That doesn't work. It just falls right off. So you have to rub the chicken, and that's where gloves come in handy or a basting brush. 
and you want to baste the chicken or rub it with olive oil. And then with your opposite hand, sprinkle what I call broadcast from very high height, like a foot and a half by the chicken. Sprinkle the chicken, the, the chicken with salt so the chicken gets evenly coated. Now, people are really super lazy. I'm sorry. But everybody <laughs> salts one part of the chicken and they don't flip it over because they're in a hurry to get in the oven. So take a breath, turn it over, salt and pepper every part of it. Now, the other part of the chicken that um, a lot of people say, well, why don't you trust the chicken? And when I was in France, when I was in cooking school, I never understood trussing because it it seemed to do two weird things. One, it compressed the legs in kind of a almost a um, uh, marquee de side fashion, and they <laughs> it, they look weird. Um, but also, I thought that it, it hampered the cooking uh, ability of the oven to penetrate the chicken at all levels and get the all the, all the leg crispy. So when you tuck the leg close to the body, you're missing that inner, inner skin. So that that remains sort of flaccid, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So chicken's free, the Berkeley style. <laughs> free chicken, legs up in the air. Um, I do bend the w- wings back on themselves. I just like doing that. I don't know why. And then temperature of the oven. To me, the optimum temperature, if your oven is, is if you've got a thermometer there, is 400 degrees for chicken. Hmm. Not 375. 375 for turkeys, 400 for chicken. Not higher. 25 degrees higher. And here's the deal. You want your chicken to be in a pan that is fairly low in profile. You don't want to have it the sides, you know. You want to cook it in a Dutch oven. Yeah. you. Our cast iron skillet is pretty good again. It's a a good vehicle. And you also want to oil the pan. And you want to make sure before you put the chicken in in the oven that you could slide the chicken back and forth. You could... it, you want to make sure it could skate. Mm-hmm. Everybody sticks their chicken in the pan. Now, it's not a horrible thing, but it's not a really good thing either because you want every part to get crispy. So when you put this chicken in a 400-degree oven, you let it sit for an hour, you salt and peppered it, you got oil on it, and it's got your undivided attention. And then on the, on the top of the stove, I put a little saucepan with a spoon and a ladle and a half cup of water, okay? Mm-hmm. We're going to get to that in a second. Okay. All right? Mm-hmm. So the chicken's in the oven, and it's hanging out. It's been about 8 to 10 minutes now, and all that subcontaneous fat underneath the chicken skin is starting to cook. And what it happens when it cooks, it literally starts to boil. And while it's boiling and all this stuff's happening, it tries to get out. It wants to get out. So it wants to get out and create, and that's what the blistering of a chicken happens, and that's where I think a lot of the magic is. So once it does that, a lot of the, some of the fat actually does does escape. So after about eight or ten minutes, open the oven door. The heat will not escape forever. It'll it'll be fine. Pull the whole um, rack out. Don't pull the pan out. Super important. Pull the rack out so you have a stable surface to to do some work here. You got your welder's glove on your left hand if you're right-handed. The opposite hand if you're left-handed, and you tilt the pan. Remember, tilting it away from yourself, not towards yourself. And you'll collect about maybe a tablespoon of chicken fat schmaltz. Got your spoon on the top of the stove. Take your spoon out, and you take that fat. And you baste the chicken. You're big on basting. Basting is everything. Basting is life. What's, ha- <laughs> what's <laughs> happening? What's happening? We've talked about this before. Well, yeah, what's so, happening so what's happening is that 
you got this hot fat from the pan, and it is hot because remember it's at 400 degrees, and you're basting the chicken, which has got fat that's bubbling beneath the surface of the skin, and you've got this hot liquid. So you got hot on the outside of the skin and hot starting to happen underneath, and the little fat underneath goes, thank you for basting me. <laughs> because then, then the skin becomes more resilient and more ready to ex- accept what's going on underneath. So you're actually preparing the skin on top for what's going on underneath. So you put back the chicken and you shake the pan to make sure the chicken slides around and you turn the chicken 90 degrees. Now, what is that? Is that like some weird, you know, satanic kind of situation? <laughs> no. The reason you turn it 90 because your oven sucks and you want to make sure that the chicken is getting love at every angle because some angles in the in the in your oven are cold spots. Right. So when you turn the the chicken ninety degrees, you're giving an giving the chicken opportunity equal opportunity. You want you get your side for the cold spot now. So you do that, and then literally every eight five to eight minutes, you baste the chicken. Now you have got the little bit of water on top. Mm-hmm. Remember the water you yeah. kept up there, a little ladle. Mm-hmm. Um, just think about that. Keep it, keep it in your range, okay, because it's going to come in handy soon. And as you're basting, you're going to get more and more fat, okay, mm-hmm. more and more fat. Um, at one point, you're going to have quite amount of fat. Now, there's a couple ways you could approach this. If, you, if you're if you a purist and you just want to cook the chicken and just have chicken with a salad, I'm all, that, that's a perfect meal. But let's say you want to have some roast vegetables. So the chicken will take, and this is the other part of the puzzle, at 400 degrees, how long do you think a chicken will take? 3.75 50 pounds. minutes, hour. So it, it it will actually cook in 11 to 12 minutes a pound all the way through. Hmm. It will actually do that. But it won't be ready. But it will be will cook hmm. in that time period. So if let's call it let's call it four pounds. And so it will cook in literally 44 to 48 minutes. Mm-hmm. 50 minutes max. So if you're basting from eight minutes out every five minutes, you're you probably you can baste at least six to eight times in that time period. Mm-hmm. As the fact gets there, you could actually have pre-poached some diced carrots, some diced potatoes, mm-hmm. some raw zucchini, whatever you want. And at the twenty-five minute mark. After you started, you can put those vegetables in the pan with the chicken. Not before, because they'll they'll disintegrate. They won't they won't be happy. And once you get once you put them in there, they become to roast in that schmaltz, and that's an amazing thing. Okay. The also another thing happens too is they absorb a little of the schmaltz as part of their flavoring agent, but their caramelization is what's beautiful about it. Because remember, the pans at four hundred degrees, the fats at four hundred degrees, the chicken's getting up to four hundred degrees. But the vegetables go in, and they're ready to go. They're going to become 400 degrees almost instantaneously. So they start to caramelize. The um, the sugars inside the vegetables, the sugars actually will start to caramelize or you know turn golden, and that's the magical part there. So you got lots of things going on. Now your chicken's roasting. You spun it 90 degrees about six different times. You got your vegetables roasting. You're, you're, you're basting all this stuff. And then at one point, you got to figure out the chicken's done. Mm-hmm. Remember that little probe we talked about with the shepherd's mm-hmm. pie? Mm-hmm. That's your best friend. So you bring that little probe out. You pull the chicken out. Take a big breath. 
and plunge it in the thickest part of the breast and let it sit there for a minimum of 30 seconds. And then pull it out and look at the temperature. Now, invariably, it'll be probably about 150 to 155 degrees at that point inside the chicken. But if you put the probe on the very exterior of the chicken, it'll probably read 175 to 180. So there's going to be a, a discrepancy of almost 20 to 20 degrees. 20. Mm-hmm. It's kind of crazy. Do you yank the chicken out at that point? Some people do. You can actually do that. Um, nothing bad will happen. In fact, some people prefer doing that. I like getting it right up to 160 at that point. And you also can test right at where the thigh meets the leg. That's another good point. So you put it back in, you baste it again, and then you you pull it out five minutes later, test it It's at my optimum. You pull the whole thing out of the oven, put it on, put it on the stovetop, and then you gently, with, with a very heavy spatula and a kitchen fork, put the chicken into a platter that you have next to you. Okay? You take a slotted spoon and you scoop up the vegetables and put it in the same platter. And what do you have in the pan? You still got some fat. You got fat, but you have protein caramelized at the bottom of the pan. So using your glove, you gently pour off a little bit of the excess schmaltz, but don't throw it away. Pour it, put it in a little, a little cup to save for later. And remember the water? Remember that water is there? Now the water goes in. So the water goes into the pan, and you're creating the sauce. And you're you're getting all the caramelization, all that. And if your chicken's stuck there and you got a little skin there, that'll help with the sauce as well. All those different things. And don't turn on the burner. Just let the natural heat of the oven to create this sauce on top of the thing, on top of the, of the stove. And if you want to, you can scrape it up with a, a whisk or a spoon or whatever, what have you. And if you want to, you could add things like a little tarragon to there. You can add some crushed garlic. You can add in some whatever you want. And at that point, you know, Bob's your uncle. You could put in butter. You could put in uh, yogurt, whatever whatever floats your boat. Um, I invariably put butter. My wife wrinkles the nose of that, but, you know, that's okay. And you scrape it all up, and then it's – remember, the pan is heavy, so you have to be careful. And using two hands – you have a little sauce. I have a little cow sauce boat. It's kind of cute at home. <laughs> so I pour it into the little cow sauce boat. Now, while you're doing this, time is passing you by, right? Mm-hmm. Time is passing you by. So what's happening? The chicken is resting next to you. We're talking about the whole resting thing. So it took you probably 8 to 12 minutes to create the sauce. Mm-hmm. And that point, the chicken is so happy you're doing that because mm-hmm. you've ignored the chicken. Don't don't look at me. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. <laughs> I'm resting. I'm resting. I'm sleeping. Take a nap. And then some people say, well, the chicken's getting cold. Okay, fine. The oven's still on, right, dude? So you take the, the platter the chicken's on and make sure it's an oven-proof platter, of course. And you open your oven up, put the platter inside of the oven. You might have turned the oven off by then, so that's fine. That was, the temperature will be fine. It'll be 280 degrees at that point. You let it in there, stay in there for four to five minutes. You bring it to the table, put it on the table. Say, okay, dinner time. Everybody comes to the table. By that point, the chicken has rested in one manner or another for a minimum of 20 minutes. So the cooking time was 45 minutes to an hour, depending on the size of the bird. I'm going to say 48 minutes. (laughs) But it rested for a minimum of 20 minutes. So it's 48 plus 20. So you really cooked the bird an hour, hour and eight minutes. Mm Mm-hmm. Even though you, it wasn't in the oven the whole time, because the cooking process really is in the time you put the chicken in the oven, 
to the time you serve it mm -hmm. because the chicken is still cooking. Right. And people have to understand that that's what's going on. Um, that's why people overcook things because they might have taken it out of the oven right when the time they thought it was perfect and they get to the table. Why is it all stringy? And because you overcooked it, you, you, you went past mm -hmm. the point. You got to, you got to get to that 160 degree point, which is super important. You got to let it sit on the, on the side. And also the tenderness thing happens with resting. There's a weird thing that happens with this molecular thing that happens in the, inside the chicken with resting that I don't understand whatsoever but i know it, it it operates that way it happens with fish it happens with meat it happens even with vegetables so you bring it to the table you put it on the table you got your vegetables on the side you bring a little cow uh cow uh, over you actually skim a little bit of the schmaltz off because it, it rides the top and how do you carve a chicken how do i carve a chicken carving a chicken is what everybody's afraid of hmm. okay so here here's the easy way to do it when no one's looking you put gloves on and you rip the breasts off and you rip the legs off and you cut it up. Don't say anything to anybody. <laughs> That's the easiest way of doing it. I have never heard of that method before. <laughs> That's the easiest way of doing it. If, if you want to be a showman and, 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 and show off to your folks at the table that you, you, you know what the hell you're doing, you take a very sharp knife and using a kitchen fork, which is a two-pronged fork, you put the chicken so it's perpendicular to you so it's right here right you know the chicken is legs are to the to your right and the breasts are to your left and you stick the kitchen fork right at the top where the the wing joint hits the breast and you take your knife and you cut right on top of the fork straight into the breast all the way through that's the thickest part okay mm -hmm. so you made that beautiful lateral cut then you turn the chicken 45 degrees, and holding the fork on the very outside of the breast, you cut straight down towards your cut, and the breast meat will fall off perfectly. It works every time. There's no issues with it. it I, I guarantee <laughs> it'll work. It does it on both sides equally. <laughs> and then uh, the legs. The legs, um, uh, you take the leg and you push the leg down with the kitchen fork, and you wiggle it a little bit to find out where the where the drumstick and the thigh meet, and you'll see it. And you take your and your knife, and knife is sharp, and you gently push down, and the leg will pop right off. Then the hardest part is then you turn the chicken on its side to get the thigh off, and you have your fork in one hand and your knife in the other. And this time you use the fork, and the fork will push the thigh off, and you don't want to slice it off unless you actually need to. And then you repeat on the other side. It's not so hard. I kind of like you're ripping it off with gloves. Yeah, the ripping off, but that's, that's a good one. I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to introduce that to my one. repertoire. It's a good one. In fact, I learned that many years ago when I worked for a, a, a chef, French chef, and he showed me how to do it. And I was, we had to do a banquet for a lot of people. And we roast all the chickens ahead of time. And they're just sitting on this rack. And I said, well, what, how are we going to do all this? Said, Come over here. And he just starts pulling them off. I was so shocked by the simplicity and the audacity of it. And it was I just started laughing. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the coolest thing I ever saw. Jonathan, it's an extraordinary disquisition on the roast chicks. I've never heard it uh, described so precisely, elegantly, hitting all the important spots. So thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> Has such a description of how to roast a chicken ever been recorded? I don't think so. When we come back, I talk to Chef Waxman about Barbudo, its West Village neighborhood, and what makes a good restaurant. 
Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. I want to talk now about Barbudo. And first of all, I really am sad. I really miss it. It was one of my favorite spots of all of New York City. Well, I thank, live thank across you, the street. It was, it was, as you say, a place to restore yourself, a place to socialize, a place to have a, a, a great bourbon with a giant ice cube at the end of the <laughs> evening. Um, it was, I think, the perfect restaurant. Well, that's, that's high praise. I don't know if I deserve that, but thank you. Um, you know what's funny, Michael? I, I was talking to Danny Meyer, who was a big fan of Barbudo, and I'm a big fan of his. And he came for one of the last meals, and he looked at me and goes, the last night of Union Square Cafe, he walked outside and started crying. Oh, my God. And he says, just wait. Oh, jeez. It never happened for me. <clears throat> no? No, didn't happen at all, you know? And I could be sentimental. I might, you know. I find that hard to believe. I could be sentimental Can about you? certain things. Okay. My daughter just graduated from Princeton last oh, week. I was very, congratulations. I was very, I very, very sentimental about that. Um, <laughs> well, how did you feel, the, the last service? I felt service? good about it. 
I felt damn good. I feel I felt like I accomplished something. And Jennifer Davidson is my GM, who's smarter than anybody and more, I think, intuitive than anybody, described it as, you know, we, we left on a high note. We didn't wait for our career to get stale and weird and bizarre. We left when we needed to leave. And whether there's another Barbuda in the future or there's a different iteration, whatever, whatever it is, it, it leaves a good taste in people's mind that, yeah, they, they, they were smart enough to get out while the going was good. They didn't wait for things to get stale and stupid. And I, I think, Michael, everything has to change. Right. Everything does. Um, MFK Fisher, I was a huge fan of reading her books about going to France in the 30s. And there's one time she talks about going to this restaurant in Dijon, which was her favorite restaurant in the world, and this favorite waiter, and and this meal that she had described in, previously in the book, and she, she went back to revisit it. And the restaurant was still there. The waiter was there, but he was a lot older. They sat down, and he was past his prime. The meal was past his prime. The restaurant was past his prime. And there was a melancholy sadness about that. Um, and I think we all have to evolve. We all have to change. Nothing stays the same. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important, especially for young chefs, to understand that you got to remember that you got to reinvent yourself. You can't if you don't change, you die. You, you, you're just never going to be successful. And that's why I think people don't get it. I think any any creative process. And listen, restaurants are are a creative enterprise. Mm -hmm. They have to be. Mm -hmm. And I work for Chez Panisse, which is probably the most creative enterprise of any restaurant in the world. Mm -hmm. I believe. And um, I think that Alice understood that, you know, that things have to move forward. Now, her idea of moving forward was going backwards in time, mm -hmm. looking back to the 19th century and the 18th century and the 17th century, because she felt that looking back to how people grew vegetables or cultivated poultry or raised livestock was more it was a better way of doing it than the way we do now. That was important to her. And that was, a, that was evolution for her. My evolution, I think, um, might go another direction, but I'm not sure what it is. I have to sort of let it go. And I think that um, that's where creativity really is important. You can come up with a great, fantastic dish, but I think having a successful restaurant is more important. Having long legs. You know, um, River Cafe in, in, in Brooklyn has been there since 70-whatever. Shaping mm -hmm. has been there since 71. Mm -hmm. um, Canlis has been there since the early 60s in Seattle. You look at these icon restaurants, and what are they doing right? You have to go study them. And so what, you know, what, how are they evolving if they don't seem to be evolving? Mm -hmm. but then you find out that Canlis went and remodeled the entire restaurant and, and got a new chef and, and restructured things. Um, the owners of the restaurant care. They really care. And they know that they have to do things to to move forward. And I, I think that um, that's great. That's what we have to do. Mm -hmm. If we rely on the tried and true, it, it just doesn't work. But in this case, you didn't um, – it wasn't really your choice. No, it wasn't my choice. Um, but um, I anticipated it happening. You know, we had this sort of Damocles kind of over our heads for, for a while. For a long – for almost eight years. Oh. Um, and so I was prepared. You know, I'd had a lot of scares. Mm -hmm. New owners. I had three new owners in less than ten years. Um, the rent kept going up mm -hmm. because the guys paid more money. I understand. I'm not. I'm not resentful of that whatsoever. The neighborhood changed when I first got there. It was a slightly dangerous neighborhood. Yeah. Um, 
I, in fact, I lived there in 83. It was even more dangerous. Yeah. Um, who knew that it would become one of the most expensive places to live in, in the world? I think I was a little bit of part of the evolution of the neighborhood in, mm-hmm. the, in, in, in a good Absolutely, way. Absolutely, yeah. I think the High Line was huge. The Standard Hotel was huge. Um, I think uh, other people opening up around me, Kurt uh, at Valse is an amazing restaurateur. He's two or three blocks from me. John George has Perry Street. There's, there's, it's an amazing little neighborhood mm-hmm. for restaurants. I think, you know, Bobby's is up the street from me. There's, there's Untitled. There's, there's lots of great little spots just in the neighborhood. Um, but it's still the village, and the village is a magical place. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I've always been a big fan of when I read about. Uh, Marlon Brando in the early 50s had an Indian motorcycle, and he lived in not too far from where Barbuda is. And he left the the Indian in the street with the keys in it in those days. No one would ever think about stealing it. You know, so the, that's the village. Uh, Mimi Sheraton, who's lived on the on 12th Street probably, uh, God, probably maybe 50 years, I think, um, is a, a big help to me to un, for me to understand the history of mm-hmm. of that street and what I was on, and and I think the history of that was important for me to embrace. Because it was important for me to be cognizant of where I was in that part of t- that part of the world, and I think you know, there's a lot of weird things happen. Like Sandy was a weird thing that happened. You know, right. That was that yeah, was kind of, that. kind of a big shakeup. Uh, we had other things that that occurred. You had I, water coming up almost into the restaurant. Didn't well, you? we we did have restaurant water in the restaurant, but what I think Michael the most the best thing about my restaurant, absolutely best thing, besides my employees or my customers. I think I don't know how I did it or how what I did right, but I I I gathered up some of the greatest of you know restaurant goers in the planet, and some of them were like you, and they came all the time. They used it as their you know their their little um, their cheers in a <laughs> bar. Um, some people came from far away. Some people had never gone there, but I think um, my customers just got it. They understood it. Um, we had the least amount of complaints, the least amount of, you know, can I have this with this? Can I have that with that? Because um, I hate rules and I, I don't, I don't like to impose things on people. The menu was small, so I always thought that we would only have a certain segment of the population that actually even liked Barbudo. But I think we, over the years, what what, what happened was when Barbudo closed, it showed me that I had this huge fan base that I didn't know really existed. Um, I just I just went along my merry way trying to keep a restaurant going for 15 years. Um, we only closed one day a year, which was uh, Christmas. One year I opened for Christmas and Jen wanted to shoot me. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, that does take a toll on you as well. Being open 364 days a year, you know, for 15 years, you know, two every lunch and dinner every day, that takes its toll. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, um, and that's why when we closed, I think we all had a collective sigh of relief that we get mm. we get a break. And how long that break will last, who knows, but um, we were all tired. And the other part of the, the what people should understand, I'll be totally transparent here, is that restaurants fall apart. Mm-hmm. Barbuda was never designed to do the amount of covers we were doing. I mean, we made it happen. We managed it to the best of our abilities. 
But the infrastructure, Bobby Flay told me once when he uh, closed Bar America and um, they got an estimate to repair all the air conditioning and plumbing and electrical system. And it, it costs as much as the restaurant cost when he first moved in there just to do that stuff. So everything was broken at, at the end. Um, everything was on its last little legs. So it was a sign, I think, that, you know, that it's time for us to move on. And... We'll see what happens. I look forward to seeing what happens. Um, I, you are going to stay in the restaurant business, I hope. I hope you're going to be. <laughs> I hope you're still going to be training cooks. You know, it's funny. Uh, Michael Simon, who's obviously a good friend of both of ours, and you know, I I, I always say that he's in he's a an old sage in a young man's body. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, he says, Wax. I don't know how long we can do this for. You know, but it's it's a little bit like a heroin addiction. You 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 never you know you never really going to get over it. And I think that um, the addiction is a good addiction. It's it's something that powers one on. I often compare having a restaurant a little bit like being, you know, a painter or a musician or someone else who whose careers just go on and on. Physicists, for instance, live long, wonderful lives. Novelists sometimes live long, wonderful lives. Um, I think that... Um, if you love what you do, you live a great life. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that if you have people that are, that are around you that support you, and you have you know you have customers that that buoy you up every day, and it's Michael, it's the nicest thing in the world when people say this is a great meal. There's nothing there's nothing better than those words. Um, or like you know, I came here from Orlando, Florida, just to eat here. That that's not a bad thing, um, and that happens so much to me. I never took it for granted, by the way, but it was just kind of amazing to me. Every time people, those words were uttered by somebody, like, I look at it, are they, are they talking to me? You know, <laughs> <laughs> it was somebody else. You know, um, yeah, it's incredibly edifying in lots of ways. Um, but the, the last part of the puzzle is that, you know, it's not about me. It's really about my staff. It's about Jen Davidson and Michael Michael Kelly and all the people, all the cooks that have gone through the kitchen, all the waiters that have you know waited in the in the restaurant. But it's the dishwashers that have the hardest job and oh, have yeah. to deal with the thousands of plates of dirty plates every day and all that stuff. Those are the people that make the restaurant work. Oh yeah, dishwashing is the most important station in the kitchen. If they don't do that, if they don't get their work done, you can't serve the food. No, I think that um, we try to treat people pretty fairly. It doesn't always work, and God knows I make mistakes. But at the end of the day, I, I think that you know that old adage about treating people the way you want to be treated is a, is a good marching paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other part of the puzzle is that be honest with yourself. If you screw up a dish, admit it to somebody. You know what? That dish wasn't great. Let me take it off your bill. Mm-hmm. Didn't like that wine? Yeah, the wine sucked. I didn't mm-hmm. make it, but I served it to you. So you have to listen to customers. You have to be, you can't be tone deaf with them. I think that a lot of people just say it's my way or the highway kind of thing. And I think that's kind of a, mm-hmm. it's an arrogant behavior yeah. that I think does, I mean, maybe it serves some people well. I don't know. But, you know, hospitality is a very difficult word for Americans. Mm-hmm. We're not good with it. Hmm. We're not good at saying hi to people. We're not friendly in that sense. Well, certain parts of the country are more friendly than others. Uh, I think that it's hard for us to shake people's hands, look people in the eye. It's hard for us to let ourselves go. It's hard for us to be good salesmen in that respect. And in Europe, what I learned was how to become a salesperson, how to give hospitality, how to become selfless in that respect. 
uh, I think I remember Michael Chow from Michael from Chow says Miss Chow he always says he loved to have Chinese cooks in the kitchen because they cook better than anybody and Italian waiters because they get the best service, you know. <laughs> so I always that was kind of funny. But it, it that joke is kind of true. Is that you know I think hospitality is not something that's inbred in us and you have to learn mm-hmm. it. But I think we all have it. We all have empathy for others. We all have passion for others. We all have a love of ourselves. Sometimes it's not readily apparent, and you have to get that out of people. And I think that's one thing that we've been very good about. I have one waitress that came to me, the most timid person on the planet. You know, she was like a little mouse. And she'll tell you eight years or nine years later that she's a different person Mm -hmm. because we forced her. We didn't care that she said she was shy. She wasn't going to be shy with us. She was going to learn how to to be a, a people person, a customer person, a, a rest. She was become a restaurateur, and she was going to learn the wine list. She was going to learn the menu. She was going to learn how to look people in the eye. But I didn't want robotics. I didn't want people to recite the Barbudo way to people. I wanted people to interpret the experience in their own voice, and I think that's really important. How to you know how to how to learn to use your voice in the restaurant, um, and I think that serves me well because i don't have you know i have everybody in sort of interpreting what i do with an overlying philosophy about how to do things which is kind of do things simply mm-hmm. so it's pretty so so the formula it, it you know um it's pretty straightforward i think um there, well, there's not a lot of crazy magic involved um you know, we serve pretty good chicken we serve pretty good potatoes we have pretty good gnocchi pretty good kale salad and we have a knife, fork, and spoon on the table, and a gla- one wine glass and one water glass, which that philosophy hasn't changed since day one. And you had servers who made the guests feel good. That they were part of the party. So we tell people, especially the hosts, and there a lot of these are from the drama department of NYU. Mm-hmm. So they're they know how to act, and they they, <laughs> they know how to you know do a role. We said, look, it's your party. So what are you talking about, my party? So when people walk in the door, do you say, what do you want? He said, "You're in my house. You're you're here for a party. Can I get you a cocktail? Can I get you a table? What what can I do for you?" And that I think is a different sort of behavioral model than other restaurants. Mm-hmm. Like they come in on a on Saturday night and the place is heaving and it's raining outside and there's there's no tables and they walk in. Can I get a table? No, I don't want to tell people no. I said, "What's what can we make happen? What what magic can we happen?" Look, do me a favor. Give me your cell phone number. I'll call you back in, in, in an hour and see if something is available. Hang out the bar. I got your number. We'll, we'll, we'll try and out. find We'll something. squeeze you in. Or sit at the bar, and the bar is the greatest place in the restaurant to eat. The bartenders are incredibly attentive. Mm-hmm. They're very knowledgeable. They're funny as hell. And you'll have a great time at the bar. So I guess I what I did was I took all the things I didn't like about restaurants, and I made those the rules. That's what not to do. And then all the things I loved about restaurants were the things to do. And it went from three-star experiences to holes in the wall in, in, in Mexico or, you know, a diner in Des Moines or wherever it was where I had a great experience. And I took something away from that. There is, I remember Sonny Bryant's in, in Dallas, Texas, great barbecue place. The owner at one, at 1 o'clock in the afternoon goes up the cash register, takes all the cash out, and, and goes home. And any other dollar goes into the cash register after one o'clock goes to the employees. Hmm. Really? Yeah. Wow. So you you know that you there's generosity 
in our business that has to, if you're parsimonious, I think people, they, they get it. They feel it. They feel it. They feel it in, in a very germane way. Um, and they feel that they're getting ripped off. People don't mind spending a lot of money for, for a restaurant experience, but it has to be really special. So the, all these experiences that I, like I went to this one restaurant once when I was a cooking school, I went to this restaurant called Boyer in, in, in Rennes, out in the Champagne region. And I was kind of an idiot. I was 26 years old. I was, you know, anyway, I, I was taking this little Austrian girl out. She had a car and <laughs> she, we drove out from Paris and we, we arrived Sunday afternoon at this restaurant. And Sunday afternoon is a big time in France. You don't drive at a restaurant without a reservation, especially it was a two-star restaurant. I walked in and the woman in the front didn't bat an eye. She goes, let me see what I can do. Hmm. She obviously got some table from from a closet somewhere, mm-hmm. stuck it in front of the closet, <laughs> dusted it off, put a tablecloth on it, and we had lunch. Wow. And that was an amazing lesson for me to learn hmm. because she didn't do it in avaricious, money-grubbing way. She do because she knew that we wanted to eat there. She obviously had enough servers and food in the, in the back to, to feed us. And I remember this dish I had, Michael, it's the craziest thing. It was one of the greatest dish I ever had in my life. It was um, the wintertime, and right, it was right about, I think, April, I think the end of April, beginning of May. And it was mosh lettuce with olive oil and sliced paracord truffles on top, mm. raw. And that was it. Beautiful. It was perfect. So th- th- those kind of things, I think, they stick with you. And they form they form the narrative. They form the story. They form the inspiration. That informs you and therefore informs your restaurant. Yeah, and they come back to you all the time. They never leave you, these th- kind of things. That's the richness of a restaurateur's life. We have to eat three times a day. We can't help it. You know, if we don't, we, we perish. Um, so you might as well make it good. You might as well make it special. Now, does that have to be glorious every time? No. Sometimes... A toast and butter can be glorious, you know. Sometimes just a cup of coffee can be glorious. You don't have to eat at, you know, a three-star restaurant every day of your life. Some people do, actually, but I, I don't know how that works. But I think I find pleasure in the mundane as well as the sublime. And I think that's, I'm pretty lucky that way. Jonathan, thank you so much for talking. This has been fabulous. You have a way of articulating the essentials of whatever you're talking about. And I'm very grateful for that. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. You know, when you can have a conversation with a chef restaurateur like Jonathan Waxman, it feels pretty lucky. Cast iron skillet, the most stable object on the planet. That's both practical and philosophical, which is part of why we love him. But it's that spirit of generosity and magic and the restoration of the soul. That's what I love most. That, ultimately, is what food and cooking is all about. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks with another bonus interview while we put together season two of From Scratch with me, your host, Michael Ruhlman.
give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.